But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for all of the the kiddos and the counselors and sponsors and adults and leaders that have been at camp for the last couple of weeks, have all come back home safely. We're we're grateful for all of the great things that happened uh, in Edmond on that campus the last two weeks as those hundreds and hundreds of kiddos were exposed to, to worship and to your word and to teaching and to service projects and and to what fellowship is and to prayer and to what discipleship is all about. And we're grateful for that. And tomorrow morning we we have our our brothers and sisters that are going to be heading to to Taiwan for three weeks. And we we pray for their family here in the States to, to be guarded and protected and provided for. But over the next three weeks, as, as this group goes and, and studies and prays and is, and is a light in that, that great city of many, many people, Father, we pray that You give them fruitfulness and that You give them success. And we pray for their, their travels as well, Father, that there be safety and that there be uh, no obstacles in them arriving and coming back uh, home in a couple of weeks. So bless them, Father. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And as we get ready to study Your Word this morning, we're, we're grateful for it. And we pray that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that it transforms us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Early 1970s, family, our family, traveled from uh, the Washington, D.C. area to northwest Arkansas, and uh, we were going up there to, to, to be a part of a, of a funeral. My dad's older brother, Joel, had passed away, uh, lived in the northwest, northwest corner of, of Arkansas in a, in a place called a Crabtree, which only had about five people in it, and we were related to all of them. And uh, after the funeral, it stayed for a couple of days, and uh, being you know pretty young at the time, I'm not sure how the details got worked out, but my grandmother uh, talked my mom and my dad into allowing my two brothers and me to, to hang out with her for the rest of the summer. They thought it was a great idea. It was a good idea. Spend the summer in northwest Arkansas, three boys, no television, no air conditioning, lots of hay to haul, lots of potatoes to pick, a lot of snakes to run from. Well, towards the end of the summer, uh, my grandmother decided she wanted to send me to a church camp that all of the kids in the county went to, same place every year, Buffalo Gap, Texas. 
there was a four-square gospel church camp that she uh, sent me to. Very Pentecostal, very premillennial. And uh, on one of the, the ending nights while I was there, we, we saw a film on the end times. It scared all the kids to death. This, this idea of, uh, of an antichrist and you know, uh, people with the, the 666 somehow tattooed on their foreheads and, and, and things like this. And it was, it, was, it was a very scary movie and a very violent movie. And everybody was crying and everybody was, uh, was scared. And I'm thinking the whole time, are you kidding me? I've never heard this in my life. Are you kidding me? And I'm thinking about this. We go back to the cabin and one of the male counselors, uh, we were probably 13 at the time. He was the ripe old age of 18, maybe 19 years of age. One of the male counselors told us that all of those beautiful girls that you see in those other cabins, you better get their phone numbers from those pretty girls because you never know when the world's going to end. It could end tonight. And it'd be the end of camp. And look at all the stuff that you would have, mi- you would have missed out on. And uh, it was so far-fetched that no one really, though, wanted to take a chance on being left behind. Well, about that time, uh, a fellow by the name of Hal Lindsey wrote a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, which sold around 30 million copies and talked about the end of the world from a dispensational premillennial standpoint, which is uh, a theological stance that our particular church family would not subscribe to. But basically, by 1948, Israel that had been dispersed throughout the entire world has come back into the land. And it looked like a bunch of Old Testament promises were coming true. The world was at stressful points in the, in the Cold War. The end is coming soon. Probably sometimes in the 1980s, the bottom line, don't buy green bananas. A few decades later, Tim LaHaye and Tim Jenkins wrote the Left Behind series, which sold over 60 million copies and addressed the end of the world from a pre-tribulation, premillennial, dispensational standpoint. Again, not one that we in this church family would subscribe to. Basic story premise, an antichrist becomes a, a world political force, uh, a Christian airline pilot and his daughter try to get the world ready for the upcoming tribulation. Again, uh, a bit far-fetched theologically. It's not a storyline from a spiritual or Christian or even a basic physical, literal, uh, historical uh, storyline that we would subscribe to. For a very long time, it has been common to see in urban areas people expressing concern for the end of the world. People walking around with the end is near. Repent, the end is near, kind of sandwich boards and and advertising and the the judgment that is to come. Lots of generations of people concerned about the end of history, what it's going to look like. For a lot of us that grew up during the Cold War, there was the fear that someday it would warm up and become a hot war and we would blow each other up. More recently, dealing with terrorism, concern that somebody's going to get their hands on a nuclear device, You know, this past week as we were gearing up for the 4th of July and Independence Day, maybe you, like me, heard a lot of reports of concern about what might be happening over the next, the last couple of days in terms of terrorism. Uh, Another part of this puzzle, the environmental holocaust, the, the global warming extinguishing all humanity in a ball of fire. Well, one of the things that you and I do, that, that we do every Sunday, 
And this is only one of the many reasons of why it's important for us to come and to be a part of the church's big worship time is to remind ourselves of an enormous fact. And it's this. God and God alone has the final word in history. God and God alone has the final word in history. Think for a moment. Your Bible history. Starting in Genesis. All of the amazing things that God has done in history. The creation. He speaks the Word. And everything that is tangible to us that we can see, that we can touch, that we can experience, and even really imagine, God created with a Word. And then falling on the heels of that is the flood. And then falling on the heels of that is the sustaining of over a million people in the desert. God calling people out of Egypt through the Exodus and feeding them and and, and giving them water in the desert and protecting them from their enemies. And not only that, gathering them and leading them to the promised land. And then there's the cross that John spoke about this morning in our communion devotional. You know, one of the really important ones that we read about throughout the Bible from Genesis to the maps that we normally don't talk about, that doesn't make that list of the really great things that God has done in the Bible is this one. Reveal. Reveal. You know, everyone here knows what a spoiler alert is, right? It's a warning that the ending is about to be revealed. So if you don't want to hear the ending of a movie or to to, to hear the ending of, of a book, you need to close your ears or turn on the, the, the music a little bit louder or, or something, cover your ears so you don't get that information. Now, at, at 50 some odd years of age, uh, I have to think about it, 54, 54 years of age, I don't go out of my way anymore to avoid uh, learning the end of books or movies. I'm okay with spoiler alerts. What I've discovered is that I actually enjoy not being stressed out. I enjoy not being stressed out by a surprising, suspenseful, twisting, anxiety-filled ending. And, as it turns out, that's a pretty wise and healthy way to live. Recently, two researchers from the University of California have written about spoiler alerts in a magazine called uh, Science Daily. And basically what they're saying is that spoiler alerts are actually kind of a good thing. It can increase your enjoyment of life. There's a quote. It could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. Let me read that one more time. It could be, and again, they're talking about spoiler alerts, how how they are a good thing. It could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. Uh, Here's a truth up here on the screen that I want you to write down on your outlines. The Bible is full of spoiler alerts on how the story is going to end. When you read the Bible, God reveals to us a lot of information. Not only about His character as a supreme value in the universe, not only about the cross and His Son Jesus and His mission and what the church is all about and reveals all kinds of things about His character, but He also reveals a lot about what's going to happen at the end. And knowing what God has revealed about the end is hugely important. Knowing what God reveals about the end helps us to see the line. Helps us to see the line. Most people get caught up in the events. 
They get caught up in, in this event, and before that event even has transpired, there's another event. And they just get caught up in all of these events without ever seeing the line of history. And it's, it's like seeing the dots, but not seeing the line. And what the Bible does is to help us to stop focusing on the dots and to see the line that God is drawing to the end. Now, we know a lot of this already. For a lot of us who have been in church all our lives, the things that I'm about to talk about, we already know. And this, for you, it's going to be a review. But for a lot of us who maybe have not grown up in the church, and maybe some of this stuff is brand new, don't even know what dispensational premillennialism is all about, don't worry about that. Just the next four points. All right? So, this is going to be a review for most of us, but here it is. Number one, When it comes to the end, when it comes to the conclusion, Jesus promised to return. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I will come back. Now, you know, we live in a world that likes to slice language up, you know, pretty thinly at times and make it, you know, mean whatever you want it to mean. But I will come back is pretty clear. He says, I will come back and take you, talking to his friends, his disciples, to be with me that you also may be where I am. In another place, Paul picks up the same theme about Jesus coming back. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. The angels, when when Jesus has ascended into heaven after, you know, on the 40th day, after his resurrection, they're there in Galilee, he ascends into heaven. The angels that are there with the disciples, it sort of appear, and the disciples see him and are startled. The angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will, what? Come back in the same way that you have seen Him go into heaven. Bottom line, we will see Jesus again. Now, questions inevitably arise. The first one is, when? When will Jesus come back? Uh, quite frankly, uh, there are, have been a lot of predictions Mainly on gross misuses of the text. Let me say with, with blindingly clear language that the Bible says no one will know when Christ returns. No one knows when Jesus is going to come back. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his, his greatest associates. And listen to what it is that Peter says. But the day of the Lord will come like a, what church? Thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. But the day of the Lord will come like a, what? Thief. I don't know about you, but most of the thieves that I've, you know, and here's the thing, I've never run into a thief. They always come and go before I know that they're even there. Just recently, uh, uh, probably in the last year or so, uh, you know, we get up pretty early in the morning, the dog and I, we get out there and we start walking around and uh, getting our exercise in. It's still dark outside and uh, we come back and, and sometime between the time that I left the house and the time that I came back, somebody broke into my truck and stole all kinds of things out of it. 
I wasn't expecting it. Thieves come at the most unexpected moment. They come when you're not looking. And the bottom line is, there should be an appropriate level of cynicism about dates. The bottom line, no one knows. Second, where on earth will Jesus come back? And basically, that's a question of geography. Where on earth will Jesus show up? Well, you know, when you think about the second coming of Jesus, that's really when you talk about history. That's the big enchilada in history. And I would offer San Antonio as the home of the big enchilada as Jesus' first stop. But what the Bible says is that it will be a universal event in which the whole world will participate. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The point is that Christ does not come to just any one place. But when He does come, it will be a universal cataclysmic event in which everyone will acknowledge Christ on that day. Well, Jesus promised to return, and He also spoke about a second element of that, the end of time at the conclusion of history, and that is there will be a final judgment. There will be a final judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face what? Judgment. To face what, church? Judgment. There is no next time, and then a 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 next time, like you find in reincarnation. Everyone has a meeting with their Maker. Everyone is destined at some point in, at the end of history to stand before God. And everyone will give an account of their life. In Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 10, a, a passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we were studying Romans, Paul writes, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Judgment, not the most pleasant thing to talk about. But friends, it is a colossal human deception to think that we live without accountability. There is no, that there is no personal responsibility for our actions or our thoughts or our deeds. Now the highest value in our culture is, is tolerance. That no one is allowed to judge. No one is allowed to say that, that, that something is wrong. But what the Bible says is that lust and greed and pride and what we say and how we live in obedience to God, all of that is going to be brought into a judgment scene. It's going to be brought into a reckoning. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus has already been talking a little bit about the end of, of times. And He says in Matthew chapter 25 that the end is, and He gives them a picture to think about, something that they've seen all their lives in an agrarian, uh, pastoral, agricultural setting. He says, all of the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And some of the most terrifying words in that text are when God says, depart from Me. When God says, depart out of My presence. 
God will say to those who throughout all their lives wanted to be separated from God and said it was my will and not, not yours, who wanted to live apart from Him, God will say to them, okay then, depart from me for all of eternity. It's one of the points that C.S. Lewis makes in a great way in his book, The Great Divorce, that, that hell is that separation from God. That hell is that place where there is absolutely no hope that God will ever come for you. It's a place where God allows the decisions that we have made in this life to follow us into the next. Again, there's a lot of debate on the reality of hell these days, but hell is where the presence and the power of God is removed and evil is allowed to run its course. No presence of God in that reality. And evil that has been held in check will be allowed to overrun unfaithful mankind like a tidal wave. And that is not the outcome that you want. There is something... There is something about the hopelessness and the isolation and the tidal wave of of evil that makes the prospect of hell heinous. But there's something special for those who have lived in obedient faith to God. That is, anticipate the resurrection. God is the creator of all life. God is the creator of all life. God loves Life. There's no one in the universe that is more pro-life than God. Right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, and you can guess it, what? You shall not kill. Taking another life makes a pro-life God angry. And He describes the kind of life that He gives to His people as abundant. It's a life that you, the joy and the peace is such that you can't describe it. It's a joy that that just seems to kind of flow out of your heart. You you don't really know how to explain because you're experiencing it during circumstances at times that are not all that great. But it is an abundant life and a joyful life and a peaceful life. And you don't know why you're happy and you shouldn't be happy, but you're happy. Mainly has to do with the fact that God has called you His. God hates death. And God hates the sin that brings that death into His creation. Do you remember what happened on the day that Christ died? When Christ died, the earth convulses with earthquakes. The sky turned dark like midnight in the middle of the day. God is a God of life. Of abundant life. Now, Anyone recognize that face on the screen? Who is this? Bob Lilly, Mr. Cowboy. You'll remember that uh, the Cowboys lost a heartbreaker to the Colts in Super Bowl V, and at the end of that game, Lilly in frustration launched his helmet across the field. He's just so angry that after all of these years of trying and trying and trying and getting so close and getting so close and getting so close, it looked like... We just can't. The Cowboys are never going to win the big one. They're never going to be able to get across the top. Frustrated that the Cowboys could not win that big game. And in his frustration, takes that helmet and launches it across the field until the next year. When the Cowboys whipped the Dolphins 24-3 in Super Bowl VI. It's a picture of uh, Bob Lilly. You know who number 63 is? Trivia. Larry Cole. 
Larry Cole, another another cowboy, another one of the great ones, to, to kind of turn it around when they were losing all the time. Now here's the question. After all of those years of frustration, of wanting to win the big one and not doing, getting so close but couldn't do it, and, and the loss and the loss and all of the criticism and all of the, 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 the barbs that were being lobbed at Bob Lilly and others saying, you, you know, you're great and you're really, really good, but you can't win the big one. What do you think it felt like when they finally won Super Bowl VI? When the Son of God returns, there is going to be a massive worldwide resurrection. And death will not just disappear, but what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that death is going to be swallowed up in victory. That's kind of an odd way to talk about death. Eating death and it being swallowed up in victory. It's kind of an odd passage. But when you think about it, you know, whenever you eat something, you eat a turkey leg or you eat some mashed potatoes or pinto beans or an enchilada or something like that, you eat it and it makes you bigger and stronger and, and helps you to flourish and it gives you muscles and it brain power and, and all, of, all of that that you swallow becomes something good. It makes you bigger and stronger and better and helps you to flourish. Now there is something about the resurrection, Paul is saying, that all of that bad stuff that you experienced in this life, from, from skin knees all the way to, to death, that there's something in the resurrection that is like swallowing death, and as bad as death is, the resurrection is able to swallow it and to take all of those bad things to make something even sweeter in the resurrection. Somehow, the death of death makes the victory all the sweeter. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be what, church? Changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. But it's not just a, a resurrection that we anticipate. We also anticipate intending that great reunion. One of my favorite words in the entire English language. Reunions. It's about great food. It's about banana pudding, as far as the eye can see. And who doesn't love that? <laughs> and pecan pie. But it's mainly, yeah, all this kind of stuff. But beyond the food and, and all the delicious things, it's about being with the people that you love. It's about being with the different kind of people in the world. It, the people that are different because they're the ones that you look at and you say, family. It's about being with the people that you love. When Christ told His disciples that He was going away, they were understandably upset. Why? Because they wanted to keep the band together. But Christ said, I'm, I'm going, but I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you with me. And then they watched Him depart. 
And the angels basically said, yes, yes, don't forget what he said. Jesus will come back. Jesus will come back. And I think that they probably checked the skies every day. Why? Because they missed him. Serious disciples of Jesus do not get caught up in a lot of the nonsense of, of the eschatology industry. But, I, but, but think about what it's going to be like the first five minutes on the other side of final judgment in that resurrection, in that great reunion, when we're all together with the long line of faithful loved ones. Where we can see the one that we prayed to for decades and decades and decades and finally be united with the one that we prayed thankfulness for all of our food and for all of our homes and clothing and protection and daily provision and all of that. But not just united with with the one, but to be united with all of the loved ones that we knew here on this planet. Reunited. Never to, to depart. Never to be separated. Never to... To, to, to know a bad thing to happen to those loved ones ever again. What, what a compelling thought each day to have. Uh, many of you know Stafford North. Uh, Sylvia Branch's uh, sister is married to Dr. North, a professor at, uh, at Oklahoma Christian University. A Stafford Bible teacher and uh, preacher always telling his, his children, telling his students about the greatness of the resurrection and the greatness of what it will be like to finally be reunited with all of your loved ones and all of the people that you care dearly about. And he has two words. Be there. Be there. You always can tell which car Dr. North is, is, uh, is driving because the license plate has two words on it. Can you guess what they are? Be there. Say it with me. Be there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And just as an aside, when's the last time you ever encouraged somebody to think about their life in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come back and that there's going to be a judgment? But in Christ, you don't have to worry about that judgment because all of your sins have been nailed to the cross. That there's going to be this resurrection where you are going to be given not a perishable body, but an imperishable. And everything that's mortal about you would be clothed in immortality. And I don't know what a perfect version of, of Mark Absher is going to look like, but I, I can't wait to see it one day. And when's the last time you reminded somebody that, that heaven is forever. That it's timeless. That it's about eternity with all of our loved ones in the presence, in the light of God's presence forever and ever. The big question right now is whether or not you're ready. Are you keeping watch? Because He will come like a thief in the night. But are you ready? Ben's going to lead us in a song, and, and maybe you've been thinking about uh, becoming a child of God for a very, very long time, but you've never made the decision to do so. You've never pulled that trigger. For some reason, it's just you've put it off and put it off and put it off. What the Bible teaches is that all of us are guilty before God, and we know it. We don't need, we, we know, even if we don't have never read the Bible, we know that there are things that we have done in this life that we are so utterly ashamed of that we don't want to speak about them, let alone think about them.
Things that we've thought about people. Things that we've said to people. Things that we've done. All of us are guilty. And what the Bible teaches us is that all of that guilt can be washed away. That it can be removed from us because of what Christ has done in His great and perfect faithfulness to God. That when we trust the work of Christ, that that is brought into our life and we are reckoned as righteous to God. And what that means is is that at some point you've heard the story of Jesus and having heard that story, you believe the story of Jesus and believing the story of Jesus, you realize that I believe it with all of my heart. That faith. And that you want to participate in that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by being baptized. Participating in His death and burial and resurrection by being baptized with Him. And as He was raised to newness of life, you are too. And God puts His Spirit inside of you to strengthen you and to help you to flourish as a disciple of Jesus. And from that moment on, the end of time is not a worry. The end of time is not a fear. The end of time is not something that you dread. The end of time is something that the more you think about it, the more you grow in your mind as to what it's going to be all about, the more you long for it and the more you yearn for it because you yearn to be in the presence of God. And if that describes you this morning, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front that want to talk to you about that happening today. And for the rest of us, let's praise God for the greatness of His promises by standing and singing with all of our hearts. I know 